Before you start listening, we just wanted to give you the heads up that this podcast discusses personal experiences of sexual harassment, which may be triggering. It also contains legal information, which isn't intended as legal advice, but we've included lots of useful contacts and resources in our show notes to help you find the individual support you need. idea that gender roles are natural, biological, and we're in our role that we're best at and we don't need to question it. I think that can be quite common and it can also be quite difficult to challenge. Well, I think that puts this episode in the difficult category, but I reckon you're into difficult or else you wouldn't have made it all the way to the final episode of our third season of Rule of Thumb the episode where we start to unpack all the ways that our gender impacts the way we're treated at work. Hey, it's Penny Terry here, and what I really want to work out is whether a person's gender changes the way we feel about their behaviour and then the decisions we make. And if it does, is that ever okay? Now, we're getting pretty good at talking about gender in the workplace when it comes to quantifiable things like the pay gap or representation on boards. But what about those things that don't fit in a spreadsheet or that we can't talk about in percentages? Those things like behaviour. It's something that industrial relations consultant Abby George often hears about. I actually have an example um, where it was quite interesting in a workplace that one person was very touchy, very huggy with another person. That person had said, I don't like it, stop. Now, if you remove gender as I have from that conversation, you say, sexual harassment, we need to do something about it. This was actually two men. And one of the managers came to me and said, look, it, it, it doesn't sit right, but, but what do we do? And I said to them, well, remove gender, remove man, add in woman or remove gender completely. Look at the behaviour. One person is saying that's not okay. You need to do something about it. How did you go with that? Do we feel differently about behaviour and the possible impacts depending on the genders of those involved? And if we do, should we? Yeah, it's complex. And really, how gender works or doesn't work in our workplaces is complex. So let's start there. If you've listened to the other episodes, you'll remember Luke. Luke is an electrician, and for as long as he can remember, gender has always been a thing in his industry. So even as an apprentice uh, starting out in the trade, um, I remember we had a uh, female apprentice start, and I remember my boss once, he said to me, um, I'm not sure whether I should have employed her. I mean, she's going to be off for two or three days a month because of a period. Now, whether or not he was aware that that person had endometriosis or a similar condition, I don't know, but it certainly felt uncool. Now, as an apprentice hearing that, 
I didn't, I wasn't in a position to speak up and say anything to my boss. I might have been shown the door. It certainly was awkward, but I wasn't in a position there to, to say anything. What do you remember thinking at the time? I suppose I probably didn't think too deeply about it um, at the time. I was quite young. But on reflection, when you're older, you think back in time of those sort of things and, and you do think, geez, that was quite profound. What a, what a horrible thing to say. That she was an apprentice? Have there been other moments where you've seen these types of things mm. happen? I did have one female colleague who moved on to a new position and she said to me, um, it was, well, it was a very dom- male-dominated area, so she was met with bitterness and uh, told, we've already picked the guy for this job, but management overruled. You only got this job because you're female. And to me that was quite, quite shocking to hear that and that she would be met with such, such bitterness and such disregard. You know, a young person trying to better herself, she was awarded a position and that's what she was met with. That was really sad to hear. What, what did you say in that moment or what do you do in that moment? Uh, by that point, she'd moved on to a different area and I couldn't say anything to, I mean, I could only listen and, 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 and hear her out. And I comforted her and said, look, I, you know, that's totally wrong. You, you'll prove them. You'll prove them wrong. So, mm. But she, she succeeded and she went on and I was really proud to see that. If we're being really honest, for smaller operators who might just have a couple of people on, is it easier for blokes to just hire blokes? I mean, is there something that could feel scary about hiring a woman for a job? I think there's a culture there where it's just, uh, you know, that's just what you do. I can see the older fellas would like, oh, it would be absolutely bizarre to employ a girl. I guess the start is to make it make women feel invited. You know, we don't want this to be a male-only club. We want it to be, we want gender equality there. And we don't want women to come in feeling like they have to try even harder to keep up with the men. I mean, that's often one thing I hear from women is that we have to work harder to prove ourselves. Um, but why? You know, we've got to start there. I know that we're starting to see some more women in the trades come through now, um, and that's really nice to see. I do believe we're only seeing the real effect in larger industry, um, where they're embracing the um, change for a more gender-diverse workforce. Um, but, yes, I do agree we probably need to see an improvement there with uh, smaller crews. But I guess that may stem down from bigger industry and as things get better over time, we may see it more. But I still think we've got a long way to go and this is really just the tip of the iceberg. What do you think it's costing the industry? It's costing them valuable, knowledgeable and talented female employees um, from being part of their workforces. I think employers are reducing their overall talent pool by overlooking women. Uh, and I think better at workplace employer relationships can also flourish as a result of having more women included in the, in the team. What do you mean by that? I just think it's nice to have a culture of men and women. I just think it works really nice. What's going on for you as you listen to Luke? Are you thinking about other people's workplaces? About your workplace? Are you thinking about all genders? About what roles people are doing? 
Have you come up with some ways to justify why the people in your workplace are doing the jobs they're doing? We've got heaps of them. The CEO of Engender Equality, Alina Thomas, has heard heaps of them. She spends a lot of time in workplaces, running training and supporting organisations to challenge ideas around gender stereotypes. I think this idea that gender roles are natural, biological, and we're in our role that we're best at and we don't need to question it, I think that can be quite common and it can also be quite difficult to challenge and because what that can often lead to is an idea that you know men are just better at some things and women aren't as good as at some things or women are better at other things and then and we just sort of fit into these roles and and it's difficult sometimes it's difficult for organizations to see that they, that their culture can change um, and so what we need to go through this process of of really looking at um at, at how gender is being um, performed and played within the organization and that can be looking at gender ratios in in leadership who's performing which roles throughout the organization who's accessing flexible um, workplace arrangements all of those sort of areas where there's often a delineation between traditional masculinity and traditional femininity that we take this opportunity to look at those and and reflect on the on the um on how we contribute to those and then questioning them and and doing it differently when you bring up this stuff when you're in workplaces training do you ever get much resistance you know, it's really common for us to get uh, some level of kind of often a little bit of resistance and, and I think that's perfectly normal. In fact, if we weren't getting any resistance, we probably weren't challenging people enough. So I, I, I think it's almost good feedback when, people, when, we, when we don't have everyone on board um, all the time. And, I, and what we have to do in that situation is, is make sure that we're always tailoring our um, messaging to our audience and I'm, I'm thinking of um, maybe in some sort of sporting clubs and so forth where there, there can be quite a gender divide between who's in the kitchen and who's on the field, um, for example. And this is the way that it's been for a very long time. And it works because, you know, you know, Stacey is really good at doing the scones, so why wouldn't she do that? And, you know, Robert's really good at bowling, so of course he'd be doing that. Like it just kind of makes so much sense. Like it, we go into that space of thinking that that's natural. The, the really great thing that's happening in Australia, though, is that there is a really inquiry into that sort of traditional practice and maybe Stacey actually wants to be bowling as well and, and you know and, and likewise you know like sharing those tasks um, around in, in different ways I, I think that there is a we are seeing a, an increased interest in, in having those conversations usually when we're doing training and working with groups there is an agreed goal that we want to do better like, and if we're all on the same page, thinking that we want to do better, the steps that we take and how big those steps are and what they look like, we can we can tailor that to the particular group. You know, what what might look like a big change in one place would be a little change in another. But I but I do feel really encouraged by that potential and the possibility there that that if, if, as long as everyone's coming there wanting to do something different, that we will move forward with it with a bit of an agreed plan on what that would look like. The difficulty, of course, is that. If people are being mandated or forced to come along to the training and they actually don't want to do any anything differently and then perhaps it's not going to be a useful part of the audience and they're not necessarily going to get a lot out of that. Elena, you have been delivering training about gendered abuse and change in this area for a long time. What are some of the things, maybe myths that you hear that really frustrate you? Um, oh, gosh. 
the thing that comes to mind is is an assumption that people probably of my age group and my generation make is that things are getting better and that young people, you know, emerging into adulthood now um, are playing a really different game to the one that that I was playing when I was a, a young person. And I and I I think there's a lot of hope in that and perhaps it might be reflective of of, of some um, communities and particularly thinking around class there, but it's not really not the case. Like we're not, we we are being misled if we think we are, you know, that we're leaving behind a world or a culture that is more supportive of young girls and young men to have healthy relationships than what we were in because I'm not seeing evidence of that from the experiences of young people who are talking to the servers, who are participating in research. Um, you could almost argue that things are worse than they have ever been. Um, so I think that sometimes we look for hope when they're in, in where we where we're not necessarily looking at the evidence there, and it's sort of also putting the responsibility onto children to become kind of like they're just going to emerge as you know butterflies into this new culture that they've created because they've received some training in school. It, it's an oversimplification of the of the issue, and it's and it minimises the. Um, I think where the resources actually need to come from and land, which is through our leadership um, and not further adding on to poor underfunded schools to try and fix the problem as well. Were you banking on the kids fixing this? Hope's crushed again because we've heard this before. Remember the work done by Chanel Contos in 2021 where thousands of young women shared their experiences of sexual assault while they were school-aged? Turns out our ideas about how we treat each other because of our gender runs deep in our culture. And while we might just hope they'll grow out of it, are they more likely to grow into it? I've been in a situation where I have overheard someone else in my profession making comments on the physical attractiveness of the speakers um, that were at a CPD event that I went to and rating them. This is the Principal Solicitor at the Women's Legal Service, Elise Whitmore, and she's not talking about schoolyard behaviour, but workplace behaviour. What did you do in that situation? I turned around after a little while and said, can we not? Um, it was a little disappointing that there were others in the room and other men in the room who didn't say anything. And I think that that is a big part of the problem when we're looking at sexual harassment is what is the culture around that? What are people putting up with? What are people being silent on? Um, and there are people there are people who really don't think that's funny, don't think that's right or that it's okay, but won't speak up and won't say anything. What kind of things were going through your head, though, in those moments before you called it up or said, can we not? My heart was racing. The member of the profession was very senior um, and I was quite junior at the time. And I just knew that I needed to say something because I wouldn't be happy with myself if I let comments like that slide. What was the response like? He stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just went back to observing the presentation we were there to see. And how about then in your head? <laughs> what were you worried about or what was happening for you? Um, I worry that I'm 
being viewed as a feminazi, that I am being oversensitive, that I don't have a sense of humour, that it's all just good fun. Um, I worry about what uh, his opinion of me might be, that it's a small profession. Um, And, yeah, the ongoing consequences of calling something out or being labelled a troublemaker. When we look at or think about that behaviour, it's obvious that it's not okay to do this stuff in the workplace. And when we look at the statistics, we know that women are more commonly the targets of sexual harassment. How does gender play into this? I think that it it is a reflection of the attitudes that we have about women in society generally. There is still inequality when it comes to pay. There is still inequality when it comes to power. Um, And I think that as our workplaces are just a reflection of what's happening more broadly in society, that we see those power dynamics and those power structures playing out within the workplace. Again, you know, it sounds so obvious, but we're not fixing it. Why not? It's really hard to approach a problem and say it's the entire culture that needs to shift because that looks so big. It is such a huge problem. Um, Where do you possibly start? And I think that shifting culture is something that needs to start top down but it also needs to simultaneously happen from bottom up. It needs to be that we call out the sexist comments that people make. We have conversations with our colleagues about what is appropriate and what's not. We have good sexual harassment policies that aren't just tick a box, that you read it on your first day and then it gets filed away somewhere. Um, There are a range of things that we can do that are management responsibilities um, and there are a range of things that we can do um, that are individual responsibilities to to help start shifting that culture. If you're one of the people who've listened to almost six episodes of this season now, you'll know this is the bit we love, the what can we do. Have you got a list? We've talked a lot about legal responsibilities, organisational responsibilities and management responsibilities. But when it comes to individual responsibilities, it can feel hard to make a change from the ground up. Emma Gibbons is an expert in change, connection and inclusion and learnt her trade working on political campaigns right around the world, starting with the Obama campaign in 2008. So she's been watching, learning and leading groundswells since she was 17. One thing you have to recognise is that not everyone cares about your issue, right? And so by organising and mobilising around a common message um, is sort of step one, right? So getting the people who do care, your supporters, organised and working in concert for a common message, that's step one, right? So that you're saying the same thing in these conversations and driving again towards that common ground. If you take the anatomy of a conversation on a meta level, this is that opening, setting the desired objective, the motivations that we're coming to it, you know, like what is the desired objective? So getting that commonality and message. Then of course you can activate the message in so many different ways, right? So you could get people on their social media platforms. You could get into those conversations, creating conversation guides. You can host events. You could petition or protest, but I think those are some of the least effective forms of activism. Um, Sometimes activism is listening. 
Sometimes activism is gentle. Sometimes activism is through art. Like there's a whole spectrum of ways that people can then take that message and that desired objective and activate it. And I think if I am an organizer of a movement, I would recommend relinquishing control of knowing what everyone is doing and when and why we're doing it and here's the plan and it's six months laid out and execute against the plan how instead do you create a, a a movement of generosity where people feel inspired to share your message inspired to drive towards this common objective but do it in their own way and empowering each of the people who care about this who are supporters to be leaders of this movement in their own right um, that's how i think change happens if you are feeling alone seeking solidarity there are likely, if not, you know, a handful of people who are also feeling the same way and not feeling alone in the movement, not feeling alone in the change you desire, or even, even not knowing what you want to happen, but seeing that something is wrong, that's enough to go out and be like, hey, does anyone else say this? And do you want to talk about it? Like, <laughs> yeah, so how can you find your, your buddies along the way almost? Because yeah, doing it alone, that's probably the only thing not to do is don't do it alone. <laughs> Do you feel less alone? This idea of not doing it alone is echoed by Ian Snapes. He's an executive coach and author. He runs a company called Frontline Mind and he's all about getting organisational culture right. He reckons that while we need good reactive processes to deal with sexual harassment, a great preventative process is recruitment, which also shouldn't be done alone. Some of the real practical solutions that I've seen, if we want to cut through to the chase, uh, recruitment is where it starts. And what you role model uh, broadly as a leader in the business uh, and what you role model when you recruit people. Uh, what criteria do you use when you're hiring? How do you set up scenarios where you can evaluate people's responses? What kind of language do they use? So. Too often an interview is a, a 30 minute, tell us about how good you are for this job. Uh, and, and this is one of the things the Antarctic program did very well. They tossed that out. They still did a bit of that, but it was over to the side. And what they do instead was they'd set up scenario-based evaluations with observations. And they'd set challenges where men and women would get to interact with each other. Uh, and these weren't 30 minutes. This was a 24-hour selection center. So you get to really see how somebody's going to relate to other people. And it doesn't take long for those patterns of communication to come up, uh, for those biases or the game playing or some of those sorts of behaviours that you see. And when you get an experienced team of, of recruiters, they can usually pick those that are going to be a major problem. It's not perfect, but it's an awful lot better than doing a 30-minute interview and taking, the, taking a punt. So, How do we modify that or adapt that to be something that might be usable in small business as well as huge, big organisations like you're talking about? Don't commit 100% right up front. Give people the opportunity to work with your team. Give people the opportunity to demonstrate that they're, they're actually okay, that they're safe to work with. It doesn't take long before you get a sense that somebody might not be the right fit. There's a couple of things you can do. Uh, I learned this very early on. Always make sure you have a, an experienced female on your selection panel. And what I mean by experienced is uh, somebody who's been in, in a leadership position and recruiting for 10 years plus. 
somebody who's got a really good intuition where they get a felt sensation, they go, I've got an uneasy feeling about this guy or woman, it's usually a guy, let's go digging. Let's go and find out what it is that I'm not feeling comfortable about here. Every time I've had that happen on an interview, on a selection panel for my own staff, there's been something there that you go, whoa, let's just not hire this person. Another thing is go outside of the reference frame when you're recruiting. So we would set up the, the person on the front desk who welcomes candidates. They're part of the selection process. We'd get them to, we'd, we'd organize a tour of the workplace and I'd get young students. We'd get young female students to show people around. That's part of the selection. How were you treated? Were you treated with respect? Were they asking questions or were they big noting themselves and telling you how good they were? What goes on here? So we'd bring in all of this information. How did that person approach you at the front desk? Did you feel respected when they said, hi, I'm here for an interview? Or did they dismiss you as just that person on the front desk? And if we got feedback that something wasn't right, we'd pay real attention to that. Um, it feels like we're not just unpacking a, a broader cultural problem, but particularly a cultural problem around recruiting and what we've been trained to do when we're going for a job, perhaps, Ian, or what we've been trained to look for when we're selecting. Absolutely. Uh, another way is, you know, give people cha challenges or tasks and see how they perform and, and particularly how they might relate with others. Um, really pay attention to probation periods. I spoke with somebody a couple of days ago. I was interviewing somebody about managing underperformance. It was an interview. And she said to me, she said, the number of times as a senior HR professional, somebody would come in with 48 hours to go on a six-month probation, and they'd say, I don't want to hire this person. They're a nightmare. And she'd say, what have you been doing for six months? You can't just give me two days to not do this. Like You've got, you've got a, a whole obligation here as a manager uh, within your probation period to, to use evidence to track whether this person's going to stay in your business or not. So probation periods are really important. Stuff emerges within two weeks. Like, I don't know a case where somebody's been an amazing employee and then they've suddenly gone off the rails in the you know, sexual harassment interaction with, with other sense without somebody somewhere knowing that that was coming. So we need this broad sense of psychological safety in teams and in organizations so that we get that information and we need to be explicit when we're hiring somebody or when we're bringing new people into the team we need the team to take responsibility for that person and that's selection not just me as the manager we're all responsible for this selection and their performance and their behavior we're all responsible for moderating culture and behavior so that's that can be as simple as that the very earliest signs that somebody's going to behave in a particular way that is not consistent with what you're looking for. We need the, the confidence within our team to know that we can call that behavior. We call this a weak signal. Uh, you've seen the weak signal. Hey, I'd like to just, this is what happened for me. I experienced this. I saw that. That's not, that's not the way we do things around here. So you give that gentle reminder. If somebody's not responding to that, then as a team, you need to start self-correcting and the team need to know that you've got the manager's backing and the manager needs to know that I need to back my team here. If my team are telling me something and I've got behaviors emerging in a new employee or even an, an existing employee, I need to take action and I need to do it quickly and I need to be decisive. How do we get to that point, though, where we are sure that we will get the backing of our manager or of our team 
that this sort of sexist behaviour isn't okay and is enough of a problem that we shouldn't hire someone? Um, I'm going to take a slightly sideways, slightly sideways approach. And this is a little bit off the cuff. And this is one where I might get feedback from your listeners. I read a lot and I see a lot on social media about women standing up and taking charge and um, really, really tackling some of this misogyny head on. And, you know, and, and I think there's a, I think there's a bit of a perception that women need to solve this problem. Uh, I, I really don't agree with that. I, th- I think the only solution here is going to come from men. And I think it's going to come from men calling out behavior. And I think we need to accept that responsibility, even if we're not the ones doing this behavior. And we look at it and we go, hey, that's a bit off. But it's the little things that we do uh, and where we take a stand. Do we take a stand when it's when it's rape? Do we take a stand when it's sexual assault? Do we take a stand when it's battery? Do we take a stand when somebody's shouting at somebody? Or do we take a stand when it's just that, you know, that leer or that look or that sideways comment or that little thing? And I think, unfortunately, it needs to be right down at the earliest, the weakest signal of of something that's not right. And, um, yeah, I think I, I'm, you know, I'm strongly supportive of of women that stand up and, and, and put forward the case for, for equality and, you know, an end to this sort of behaviour. I, I think it's going to be men that, pr- that provide this solution, though. It just has to be. We're nearly at the end of this season, but for some of you, it might be the start of the solution. And that might feel big. It might feel easy. Let's check back in with some of the people we've met this season to see where they're at. I feel tired. I feel tired. I feel like, yeah, like I don't have a solution. Is there any big picture stuff? Those things that we can all start doing tomorrow, if you like, that might make a difference? Uh, knowing knowing what the behaviour is so that you can identify it and, and, and maybe call it out, yeah, is 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 good I guess yeah it's tough isn't it yeah yeah it really is it's really tough I guess one of the anxieties I have is that you know we have quite a established discourse around this stuff we have workplace frameworks we have governments that pay lip service to these issues but then we know from the behavior behind the scenes in those very workplaces that we're not yet walking the talk you know I guess the thoughts I have is that um, we need to make like the, the mechanisms around reporting and disclosure you know independent of the establishment that these violations might might occur within yeah firstly men need to be better so men to we need to be our strongest I suppose police if that's the right way of putting it you know we should be calling out things that we're seeing that we're not comfortable with so you know, number one we need to be the strongest advocates for this to be ironed out in Australia once and for all. Um, I guess the other thing too to remember is you don't know everything yeah. nor are you expected to but recognize where you don't know things and get help that's what we're there for that's right. so you know if you're sitting there going I know I need to do something, but I don't know how. Pick up the phone. A lot of it has to start at the top. 
Uh, a lot of it has to start with organisations recognising that they have a cultural problem and be being willing to lead. In terms of what people can do on the ground, well, there's a lot to be said for collective action, um, for um, calling for cultural change, for calling for updated policies, procedures and processes. What can everyday people do tomorrow that would make a difference? Be kind. I know it sounds sort of trite, but if you're a kind, if you are kind and respectful toward people, regardless of who they are, you simply can't be discriminatory and horrible. Don't just say the first thing that comes off the top of your head, or if you're in a cohort of people and they sort of egging you along to sort of where you know it. I think I could be behaving badly. Trust that instinct because if you think you're behaving badly, you probably are. And it's the same like for people. If you think you're being sexually harassed, you probably are. feels like a good place to stop because we could go on forever and it might feel like we have been going on forever talking about the problems the laws the impacts the processes the ideas and solutions for sexual harassment in every episode of this podcast if you haven't listened to them all yet go back if you have please share this with someone who you reckon might benefit or if that feels a bit much just do the review thing on your podcast app and help a random find their way here Even after six episodes, we know there are many more questions to answer and ideas to unpack like restorative justice or positive duties, but we hope you've got a decent foundation to go deeper on your own. And when I say on your own, I mean using the links and resources and contacts that we've got in our show notes. And if you want more now, scroll back in your feed and check out our other two award-winning seasons of Rule of Thumb. And look, we can't make these podcasts without the passion and knowledge of the team at the Women's Legal Service of Tasmania, nor without the support of my team here at Healthy Tasmania. So a huge thank you. And we certainly could not make these podcasts without the many, many people I spoke to on and off mic who generously shared their expertise and their experiences of sexual harassment to help us all learn. My name is Penny Terry and you've been listening to the final episode of Season 3 of Rule of Thumb, a podcast for the Women's Legal Service Tasmania. This project was funded by the Tasmanian Government through the Department of Communities as part of the COVID-19 Family Violence Response.